to Mid Wretched, friends. <laughs> Welcome back to Mid Wretched. You know what I realized the other day? What? We never say our names, we never introduce ourselves. We don't do that anymore, do we? Because we assume that people are not new to us, right? But like every other podcast, they still like do that. Yeah, should we? I'm Mick. Hi. Hi, I'm Tommy. What's up? Mick is here with a story for us today. Yay. And I'm expecting it to suck. <laughs> Not suck oh, as it be a bad okay. story. No, no, no. <laughs> I'm expecting it to be kind of tough to hear. Is what I meant. That yes. Jeez. <laughs> your story is going to suck. Content notice. This is a kid case. It is. It's a little tough. It's a little tough of a case. So sorry we are doing things a little out of order and you're getting three straight weeks of me. But shit happens. And we just move things around every once in a while. Yeah. So that said, today we're going to travel back to close to my homeland. um, The little south western corner of ohio Mm. so if we're in the shirt pocket it's the bottom corner of the ohio of america's shirt pocket oh we're going with that yeah i like it or if you think it's the kitty face it'd be that nice little chin scratch spot on it it's the shirt pocket so we're travel we're going to be traveling between two kind of different cities here anderson township and middletown ohio okay anderson slash union township they're very close next to each other it's a cute little suburb, just about 13 miles outside of Cincinnati, mm. a little bit south of Loveland, home of the Loveland Frogman, because mm. I like to share my factoids about every little town that we visit. Um, if you don't know about the Loveland Frogman, then just go look him up. He's great. Gosh, who wouldn't know about the Loveland Frogman? Are you Googling him? I will be, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that will be my next tattoo, my Krillin's really? tattoo. Yes. No, I'm just kidding. No, I get the Flatwoods monster if I get anybody. Union is a kind of like middle, upper middle class area. Median income is about 75K. It's really super solidly suburban town. It's a pretty nice place to live. Nice place to grow up. It's cute. It's an Ohio suburb. Mm -hmm. We're also going to be talking a little bit about Middletown, Ohio. Um, Middletown is right kind of between Indianapolis and Cincinnati. In many ways, it's really middle and working class, um, in that area, much lower income, household income is about 42K Mm. and about 22% of people live below the poverty line. Mm. Interesting fact I learned about Middletown, Ohio, that kind of surprises me. It is where the book Hillbilly Elegy by J.D. Vance is set. Really? Yeah. Okay. That so is here's an excellent I... book. Really? You don't like it? I, I, I've never read it. The oh, movie okay. got terrible reviews, and J.D. Vance is kind of a douchebag. No, it's a good book, though. It's on the wrong side of Ohio to be considered Appalachia to me. Mm, okay. Maybe I just don't like J.D. Vance. Maybe. Maybe that's just me. We're starting on our story in Union Township in front of the Hamilton County Sheriff's Office. On August 22nd, 2006, where 30-year-old former homecoming queen Liz Carroll is holding a press conference, asking the public to be on the lookout for her missing foster child. Liz stands wearing a white shirt with pink lace and jeans, the same outfit that she had been wearing a week prior at Juliff's Park in Cincinnati, 
where her foster child, three-year-old Marcus Beisel, went missing. Liz tells the crowd that she had taken her four children, one biological, one child that she was babysitting for, and two foster children, including Marcus, to the park. She shares that while they were at the park, she had blacked out due to, heart, due to a heart condition, mitral valve prolapse. And when she came to, with the aid of paramedics, Marcus was missing. Marcus was known to be a spirited, energetic child. He was minimally verbal, with only a few verbal words, and was reported to either had fetal alcohol syndrome or autism. In many places, it's reported that he had autism, but it seems, if you look at him, he looks very much like a fetal alcohol child, like a child with fetal alcohol syndrome. Yes. Um, the two have a great deal of overlap, so it wouldn't surprise me if he would have been diagnosed with both, but at three years old, he also might not have just gotten those formal diagnoses yet. I'm going to send you a picture. He's a cutie. Oh my God, he's such a cute kid. You know I like to see the babies. Aww, he's cute. You can see the FASD. Yeah, you can definitely see the FASD um, really well. And then there's this very cutie, cutie picture. Aww. He's right? So <laughs> Aww, what a doll. Yeah. So he's reported in a lot of places to have autism. It looks more likely from uh, more of the deeper dive sources that I had that he had fetal alcohol syndrome. Again, there's a lot of overlaps. Whatever it is, I think that some of the things that just about his personality and who he was, he was <laughs> very impulsive. He had some developmental delays, but he was playful and energetic and spirited and when they interviewed people about this kid, were like, oh my God, he was so loved. He was mm-hmm. like just a goofy, silly, super duper playful kid. Aww. He had come into the care of Liz and her husband, David Carroll, in April of that year. So just a few months prior after his mother was unable to care for him and his two siblings. Mm-hmm. We'll talk about them later, but the two siblings had been placed in a different foster home. So the children, unfortunately, were split up. Liz Carroll, during that press conference, tells the crowd, quote, anyone who saw me with my kids, who saw me or Marcus, please contact the news and let them know any detail can help. She says she was wearing the same outfit that day in hopes of jogging anyone's memory um, that had seen her at the park that day. She expresses hope that Marcus is alive, hoping that somebody took him and that he is unharmed. She describes the day leading up to when they went to the park, saying that they had come from Blockbuster Video straight to the park. The kids had played on the swings and the slides. Marcus had really liked the curly slide and had played on that for quite a while. And she says that she was the only adult on the playground in that area that day. But she had become lightheaded and headed to the Powerade machine to kind of get some sugar in her system. While she was walking over there, Marcus had run over to a daycare group that were playing with water buckets and ducks. When Liz went over to the group, that was when she passed out, and she said she didn't wake up until she was being treated by the paramedics. Hmm. So the day of the disappearance was August 15th. After the paramedics had helped her come to, she was taken away to the hospital. The other three children that were at the park with Liz were taken into care and taken into custody while David, who had taken the children, 
had taken the couple's three older children swimming at a local pool, went to the hospital to check on Liz. David was told by police that, hey, your three children are okay, they're safe, they're fine. And that's when David says, well, what about a fourth child? What about Marcus? And that's when police start to scramble. Immediately after learning about Marcus and his developmental delays, police declare Marcus a, quote, critically missing child, meaning that he was at significant risk of harm and immediately began searching for him. At this point, they're searching because they don't know if he's been abducted, if he's been harmed, or if he just ran off. He could have been in an accident or something else could have happened to him. Like, the field is wide open here. As soon as they get the alert, and this is kind of tells you, I think, a lot about the community, but the entire township is alerted to the missing child through news, radio, and the internet. Volunteers begin to stream into the park. And by nightfall, there are hundreds of children participating in a grid search, going through the park, going through people's backyards, going through storage sheds, all looking for this little missing toddler. If you look up Julep's Park, it is a really big area to search. And there's a lot of housing and other kind of things around. It's a really cute park. There's yeah. like the playground area and then there's like just kind of big See, Like animals. athletic fields and other stuff. Yeah, we have a lot of that kind of stuff too. The entire town is out looking for this missing toddler pretty quickly and a local businessman offers 10k to anyone with information about the child. So he disappeared on August 15th but by August 18th police tell the citizen search committee to head home. They said they have collectively searched miles and miles of land with no trace of the missing boy. So the search went on for three full days, like literally miles of space was covered with a freaking fine tooth comb and there was no trace of what had happened to him. It's basically every parent's worst nightmare. Absolutely. I think especially parents of disabled kids, developmentally delayed kids of like, you know, your kid's already at risk. Yeah. And... You know, kids that struggle with behavior problems, with impulsivity and sensory seeking and things like that, anything and everything can be going through your mind. Mm -hmm. And this is where I kind of want to pull back and talk a little bit about Marcus and who he was, this really, really sweet little three-year-old who in his short life had already gone through more than any kid should ever have to deal with. Marcus was born June 24th, 2003. He was the second child born to Donna Trevino. Marcus had an older brother, Michael, who was seven years older than him. And he also had a younger sister, Peaches, who was about two years younger than him. Peaches. Peaches. Aww. So Michael, Marcus, and Peaches. All right. My cousin named her kid Peachy, so I'm with it. Oh my god, I had never heard that name before, and I was like, that is really, really adorable. Um, But with this little family, I think it's important to talk about their mom, Donna. Donna had a rough life. A lot of this information that I got here is from Holly Schlack, the author of Invisible Kids, The Legacy of Marcus Faisal. And she had really did a deep dive on Donna. 
Um, she reported that Donna also early in her life was diagnosed with developmental delays that impacted her functioning in school and throughout her life. And I think in a lot of areas, even as an adult, Donna had been abused throughout her childhood until the age of 13 when she eventually ran away from home. She tried to just kind of string together a life which included several relationships, most of which were abusive in various ways. She admitted that she didn't have a lot of great skills, like for working, for parenting. I mean, you grow up with developmental delays. It sounds like learning disorders. You're not taken care of throughout your life. You're abused. You don't get a lot of great life skills. Um, She struggled as a parent. She struggled to work. She struggled in relationships. In an interview that she gave after Marcus disappeared, Donna said she would, quote, never be a wonderful homemaker, but I loved my children. I loved Marcus. I just needed some help taking care of him. He was so handicapped. Mm. That's so hard. It really, really is. And... I struggle with this case because reading a lot of, like, the newspaper reports, people were so hard on Donna. And people blamed her for what happened, even though she wasn't even around when this event happened. And when I read her story, I think it's way too easy for people to blame her. And, you know, like, I, it's not likely that my baby will have any kind of, like, intellectual disability or anything like that, but, and so I I speak from a different set of experiences, I guess, but I would just say that, like, parenting any kind of a special needs child Mm -hmm. takes a tremendous degree of fortitude, patience, savvy all kinds of stuff like it's not this is not like a simple job you know what I mean no no we're so hard on people that don't do it quote-unquote exactly right when doing it exactly right is really 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 hard it's really hard for people who are in the best of situations yes (laughs) precisely (laughs) that is my point that's my and so if you think of I'm going to, I want to go on and I want to tell the rest of Donna's story and then we'll kind of pick right back up on this conversation. Um, Donna had moved to Middletown, Ohio, right around the time that Marcus was born. She said that they, Marcus, Michael, and her had moved to Middletown to, quote, get out of a bad situation in South Carolina. And that was kind of all she said about that. For a while, they lived in Hope House Shelter a homeless shelter in Ohio and later in an apartment in Middletown until the man that she had been dating at the time and living with had become violent with her. They eventually were able to find another apartment to live in, this time just Donna and then her three little ones. At this point, Peaches had then been born. Gotcha. So that's a lot of moving around for her and the kids between shelters, apartments, Mm -hmm abusive relationships yeah that's a lot the apartment that they lived in i feel like i just want to say it's what you would expect for a family living in high poverty in this area okay i might disagree that middletown is appalachia but i don't disagree that it is 
a pretty high poverty area. Mm-hmm. Like we said, 22% of people live below the poverty line. Gotcha. And so she's living below the poverty line with three little kids, one with a high, one with a significant disability. Jeez. In the apartment, things were falling apart. There were flea infestations. There were broken windows. Donna claims that she tried to report all of these problems to the landlord, but nothing was ever done about them. She says she tried to bug bomb the house, but if you've ever tried these, you know they don't work. And she really quickly became overwhelmed. Like, she owned up to. She's not a homemaker. And I don't think that she was ever able to keep up with the needs of her family and her home. In January 2003, so just a few months before he um, was taken into custody by the foster care system, January 2003, Marcus fell out of a broken second-story window. Oh, my goodness. It it seems from what I was reading that, like, the latch on the window was broken, and it would just kind of, like, if you leaned on it, it would open. Um, that was my take, my impression from what I was reading. He was taken to the hospital and received stitches, but was otherwise okay. Poor baby. You take a kid into the hospital with that story, police and child services are going to, going to investigate. Questions, yeah. But by the time they had come to the apartment, uh, Donna had already reported the incident to the landlord. The landlord had come to nail the window shut, and it went down um, as from child services as an accident. Unfortunately, it was just a few months later on April 22nd. Marcus had managed to get out of the house and was found several blocks away wandering alone in the road by a neighbor. Once again, child services investigated um, and came to the house because obviously, like, that's a danger. You have a toddler just wandering. When child services came to investigate the house, they found a cluttered home with barely any food, fleas all around, clutter, trash. When they entered Marcus's room, they found the wall smeared with feces and no furniture aside from a two-inch foam mattress. Police and child services at this point decided to remove all the children from the home. Now, there are some reports that when this occurred, Donna had yelled at the police, they're your problem now. Wow. Yeah. Donna disputes this. Donna says that she fought and argued until she couldn't anymore. She admitted that she felt sick and overwhelmed by the children. She acknowledged that she was not able to care for them, but she stated that she loved them and would never hurt them. She shared that she wanted to regain custody of Michael and Peaches, but acknowledged that she was not in a place to care for Marcus. She would later state, quote, I needed so much more help with Marcus than anyone could give me. I just didn't know what to do. I know there are a lot more parents out there like me. And now this is kind of where I'm like, okay, let's come back to that conversation. That's honest. And I appreciate the honesty. I don't think that Donna was cut out to be parenting. It sounds, I don't know if she was cut out to be parenting any child at this point in her life. Yeah, it doesn't really seem like it. But where were any resources for her? And that's the, I mean, I I feel like I say it so much, but it's so true that, like, there are a shocking number of resources out there Mm -hmm. for families with special needs children 
the yeah. way that you signed those resources. <laughs> Let me finish. <laughs> there, I, I will, there's not enough resources, but there is a surprising mm-hmm. number of resources. However, what it takes to find those resources, for one thing, apply for those programs, wait it out. Like it's a tremendous workload to be able to do that. So if I have mm-hmm. anything else working against me, being able to navigate those systems is like next to impossible. You know, like I struggled. I had a wanted, expected child. <laughs> I have two master's degrees. I have a, I have a good job. I have good insurance. It took me months to navigate something like social security disability for one thing, right, for example. Oh, God. Oh, God. I used to work in community mental health, and I could not navigate it. Yeah. I I had to direct everybody to our social workers and our care team, and God bless those people. They do the Lord's work. Yeah. I don't even believe in God. But, <laughs> um, but the work is there. The yeah. work is there. And so to act is, like, oh, there's yeah. stuff out there, just get it, is like, you don't know what you're asking. Like when you, like people that say that kind of thing, like you don't know what you're asking. You know what I mean? You really don't. And I, even today, to see a developmental pediatrician to get an autism diagnosis to qualify for like intensive therapeutic supports. In Chicago, our wait lists for behavioral pediatricians are a year and a half, two years. Mm-hmm. It's obscene. Yeah, I don't know. And you have to have that diagnosis and that evaluation in order to qualify for therapeutic preschools and developmental services and that sort of thing. If those things are available to you in the first place because of where you live. So, mm-hmm. like, even with everything that we've been through, like, there's not a medical daycare in town. So, and we live in a, South Bend, Indiana is a decent sized city. There is not a medical daycare in the city. That's crazy. So in order to get my infant who needs a medical daycare to a medical daycare, I'm either driving, I'm driving to suburban Chicago to get that. Mm -hmm. It's not worth it. Right. But like there again, yes, there are resources. There are things you can do, but it's not, it's not a magic and it's not accessible. And I think to a person like Donna, I, she would never have been able to navigate those resources. It doesn't sound like it. It really doesn't sound like it. You know? Yeah. Like there have been several resources that I've just given up on because it's like I need it, but I don't need it enough for the rigmarole to be worth it, you know? Oh, yeah. Um, so, yeah, there's not a lot of resources out there, but it does seem like Donna was at least trying. I don't know when Marcus received any diagnosis of autism or fetal alcohol, but at the time that he was taken, like I said, he had very few verbal words. He was showing signs of impulse control, dysregulation. He communicated through his behavior. He was it sounds like a big sensory seeker. I have seen kids like this that come from very attentive homes. I have seen kids that do. They're, they're runners because they don't have the impulse control or the awareness that hasn't developed and they need support in doing that. Mm-hmm. It, again, it doesn't matter how many resources you have. Some kids are hard. Some of these behaviors are hard. Yeah. 
Marcus was. Um, I found in one source, and it, it wasn't clear if it was before or after he was living with the Carols, um, that he was attending a therapeutic school for autistic and otherwise disabled kids. Were they his only foster placement, or had he gone to other homes as well? The Carols were his first foster placement. And just to kind of tell you again a little bit more about Marcus, um, those who knew him described him as, quote, an awesome little guy who loved Bob the Builder flowers and bubbles. Sounds like a pretty good three-year-old. Everybody said that he was very, very active. And one neighbor found Donna weeping with exhaustion from trying to keep up with him. So again, I don't think that it was a wrong move to place him to try to find a family that could take care of him. I don't think that the state made a wrong decision in placing him in custody with a family that had more resources, like emotionally, cognitively, tangibly, any of that. Yeah. And And even Donna said, like, yeah, I could not care for him. So in April of 2006, Marcus and his siblings are taken into custody by the Butler County Children's Services. Their case is handed off to Lifeway for Youth, a private company that the state contracted with for foster care and adoption placements. This is pretty common to have, like, private corporations handling Mm -hmm. foster care. It's very common. Like I said, he was placed separately from Michael and Peaches, likely due to his medical needs, um, mm-hmm. and just the fact that it is very, very hard to place siblings together. Yeah. Marcus was quickly placed with David and Liz Carroll, who lived in nearby Union Township. Liz and Carroll already had four children of their own, ages eight, seven, five, and two. Mm-hmm. While both of them had previously worked retail jobs for the two years prior to taking in Marcus, they had made a living running in in home daycare service Hmm. so they ran a daycare service they took in foster children they had one other foster child at the time under the age of two i wasn't able to get a clear age i found his name but i'm going to leave that out yeah they had obviously passed a background check to be able to foster children the only real history that popped up on the background check was a bankruptcy filed in 2004 for what Liz described as, quote, youthful credit card use. <laughs> I mean, We've so all had a little so youthful goes. credit yeah. card use. So from the outside, it seemed that the Carroll family was a great fit. Marcus could play and learn from the other kids in the family and in the daycare. Um, he was in a well in a more well-resourced community where he could get support and services to aid his development. And he he wasn't too far from home. Um, Now, we don't have much information about Marcus's life over the next few months, um, other than a few details that I'll get to in a bit. We don't know much until that August day at the Sheriff's Department. So Liz Carroll had described the family's day Prior, um, like I had talked about, leading up to the disappearance, Blockbuster Park, they had been planning on leaving the park soon because Marcus actually had an appointment for an MRI. Mm. So while Liz Carroll is standing at the sheriff's department pleading for information from the public, the police are listening in the background, knowing information that the public does not know. And what the Carroll family does not fully understand that the police know Mm. 
you might get where I'm hinting at mm-hmm. going here. Mm-hmm. Well, the police say at the press conference that they did not have any suspects at that time. They had their eye on a few select people. Because in that week between when Marcus had gone missing on August 15th and the day of the press conference, August 22nd, the police had been hard at work gathering information and putting together a story of what they thought happened. Okay. And that story begins with their first interviews and background checks of the Carroll family. Their first fact discovery reveals a complaint of domestic violence against David Carroll from June of that year. Mm. He had reportedly pushed Liz into a door in a pool table. Hitting her head, Liz, however, would eventually drop the charges and she would tell the police that David was not typically violent, but they had had that skirmish um, and she had had called the police to stop him from driving drunk. Mm. She said that his behavior was affected by the fact that he had been diagnosed with bipolar disorder, which had affected his behavior. Hmm. So we're learning a little bit more, kind of seeing through the cracks of this family. Yeah. Well, not gold star behavior, being diagnosed with bipolar disorder isn't a crime. Obviously, we support our bipolar friends. Yes, we do. The next bit of information seems to trigger a little bit more attention from the police. Hmm. So Liz and David were married. However, David also had his girlfriend, Amy Baker, living in the home. Oh. That was not previously reported to the police or the foster care agency. Oh. Nor had the the domestic violence incident been reported to the foster care agency. Huh. I grew up in a big family, so I'm very obsessed with space. Mm. So I just need to point out that there are five children, three adults, and a family dog living in one house where they run a daycare. That's really intense. Yeah, that's a lot of people in a house and... Well, they live in a nicer area. They, it's not like they lived in a huge home. Mm-hmm. And the fact that David had a second girlfriend living in the home kind of starts to spark a few questions. Mm. And the biggest piece of evidence that police come across is that nobody can confirm seeing Marcus for weeks prior to when Liz reports passing out at the park. Really? Not like one week. But, like, for several weeks, nobody can report seeing Marcus. That's very alarming. The last known attempt to see Marcus was on August 10th when his caseworker from Lifeway for Youth attempted his official check-in visit with the family. And that caseworker was turned away by the Carols who said that Marcus was sick and can't see anyone. Prior to this August 10th appointment where the caseworker was turned away, no one can confirm seeing Marcus since very early in the month. If there are no confirmed sightings of a toddler for three weeks, people should start being suspicious. And so police start to form their theory. During the few weeks of investigation, David and Liz had both taken polygraph tests. Liz had passed the test, but David did not. Liz claims at the press conference, because obviously somebody asks about this, um, she says she doesn't know why David didn't pass the test, but claims that she still supports him. 
we had nothing to do with this, blah, 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 blah. He didn't pass for other reasons. He was nervous. It didn't pa- he was just nervous. He has bipolar. It was his medication. I'm sure she came up with a lot of different reasons. Um, I tried to find a full video of this uh, press conference, but everything I found, it was really chopped up. So police have this theory. They're like, okay, something here is sus. Nobody has seen this kid in weeks. His foster parent is failing. (laughs) Sorry, there's a cat on the mic. (laughs) He really, yeah. That cat is always lonely. Shut up. I know. He's the horniest cat. His headphones are like, what? So uh, police are like, okay, nobody's seen this kid in weeks. They're refusing to let the caseworker see him. Foster dad is failing his polygraphs. Let's make a move. Without too terribly much to go on, police decide to take a risky course of action. They serve both Liz Carroll and live-in girlfriend Amy Baker simultaneously and bring them into police custody. Way to go, Ohio police. So they bring the women in simultaneously and put them in separate interview rooms, each one knowing that the other one was being interviewed. Police want to see who talks first. Liz Carroll stands by her man. She stands by her story. She repeats exactly what she had said happened at the park that day, that she had blacked out and when she came to, Marcus was missing. She insists that she wants to find Marcus and bring him back, that she's worried about him, she cares about him. Meanwhile, Amy Baker is about to tell a different story. And here is what Miss Amy Baker says. On August 4th, The family had planned to attend a family reunion in nearby Williamstown, Kentucky. Williamstown, Kentucky is about an hour south. So this is all kind of in the Cincinnati area, right by the Ohio River, right by Ohio-Tucky. But they didn't want to take Marcus for whatever reason. A reason is never really clearly given. They did not want to find Marcus and they did not want to find him care. So the Carols, Liz and David, and Amy Baker wrap Marcus in a blanket and bind him in packing tape before locking him in a closet in the home. She just confessed to that. This is her story, yes. They wrap a three-year-old toddler in blankets and packing tape and shove him in a closet on a hot August day in Southern Ohio. They abandon him until they all return to the home on August 6th. There's no way she could want person. No. When they return, they find his dead body in the closet. It would eventually be determined or rather theorized that Marcus had died of hyperthermia. It was estimated that the closet got as hot as 105 to 110 degrees that August weekend. Marcus left bound, suffocating in blankets with no food or water, lost his life. Like I kind of had previously mentioned, we know very little about Marcus's life in the home leading up to his death. But for me, this is all I need to know. 
how he lost his life is all I need to know about how he was treated there. I found one um, local newspaper article where they interviewed the father of the other foster child that was in the custody of the Carols. Mm. The father of the other child would come forward. He confessed that he lost custody of his child because he was selling drugs and his wife was using drugs and they could not support their child. And much like Marcus, he was taken into custody and given and placed with the Carols. This father shared that his son, who had he eventually regained custody of, still suffers from nightmares, rages, and other developmental trauma symptoms from his time and treatment in the home. Wow, I don't doubt that at all. I know that there are people that will say, well, they were too young to remember it, but... The body keeps the score. <laughs> I get to go to his training next month. Do you really? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Cool. I have a two-day tra- two uh, Vander Kolk training. Um yes. When your body never learns regulation, when it never learns soothing, that is what will happen. So Amy Baker, continuing in her interview, said that upon returning and facing the consequences of their actions, she and David took Marcus's tiny body out to an abandoned farmhouse on a massive swath of privately owned land where they found the chimney of an abandoned farmhouse and burned his body. Oh, my God. They then took the remains of whatever could not be burned and threw them in the Ohio River. So we'll never find them then. They would eventually find tiny, tiny remains of what was... Did they really? ...of what was in the ash of the abandoned farmhouse. It's, it's a really weird story about how they found this farmhouse. So if you've ever driven, like, through kind of, like, rural Ohio in this area, there are a lot of these old abandoned farmhouses. Like, people still live on the farming grounds. But, yeah, I mean, it's the same way here. Yeah. Yeah. On the other side of the farmland. Might there's... be, like, the original home or an old pole exactly. barn or whatever. Yeah. Yeah, lots and so these, and so a lot of these old stone chimneys are still standing. Mm-hmm. And when they found kind of from these confessions, Amy Baker would tell them, well, it was this house. This was the one the owner of the land had no idea, no idea what in the world had happened. He had no clue that anybody was on his land. And he let police like, yeah, like, go find right, it. Like, so whatever. Yeah. What else are you going to do? And they would find, like, small bits of bones and things like that. They would never recover anything from the Ohio River, though. It's too painful. Yeah. Amy would report that over the following few weeks, tensions in the home would get worse and worse between the adults. Mm -hmm. And it was on that August 10th visit from the Lifeway caseworker that they finally knew that they had to come up with a story about what happened. It was put on Liz to follow through with the story of the disappearance. For whatever reason, however this went down, this is what they told. Liz had to tell the story, Hmm. Um, which she would hold to even through her investigation and through her police, through courts, everything. Wow. This is the part that's kind of infuriating. Hmm. Um, In exchange for her cooperation with the investigation, Amy Baker would be offered a plea deal and would serve no jail time related to the crime. Really? None. Wow. 
While she was granted immunity in Ohio, she would face charges in Kentucky for evidence tampering. And this gets into a really wonky, like, oh, who owns the Ohio River? Mm, Well, yeah. Yeah. So Kentucky wanted to file charges for evidence tampering. But eventually with jurisdictional shit, those charges would be dropped. Hmm. Amy Baker never served any time for this crime. Really? Several years later, she would serve some drug-related charges, but it was pretty minimal. She never had any consequences for this. That's wild. On September 6, 2006, so literally just a few weeks later, Liz and David Carroll would be indicted on two counts of child endangerment and one count of involuntary manslaughter, as well as making false alarms and inducing public panic. David faced an additional charge of gross abuse of a corpse for the disposal of the body. Both Liz and David were offered a deal of 15 years, a minimum of 15 years, if they pleaded guilty to manslaughter. Liz's trial was first. So Liz went to trial in February 2007. This is happening in really, really quick succession, by the way. And Liz decided to try her luck with a jury trial instead of taking the plea deal. Liz came out looking bad. The trial lasted 10 days and Liz would never testify at the advice of her lawyer, which is pretty common lawyer advice is that you don't take the stand. Yeah, yeah. Um, they would call Amy Baker to the stand. Her story would somewhat change during the trial. She said that David regretted binding the boy on their way to Kentucky and wanted to turn back. She claimed that well, they drove to Kentucky. By the time they got back, he was already dead. I don't know if I would believe that because it's only an hour to Williamstown. Yeah. And an hour, he probably would have been passed out and very sickly. I don't know if he would have been dead. Mm. Amy Baker and Liz Carroll would disagree on who, or, well, Amy Baker would, again, change her story about who was binding up Marcus. Again, kind of putting everything on Liz Carroll. After the 10-day trial, the prosecutor, his name was Daniel Breyer, would say this in his closing statement. Quote, they say you wouldn't treat a dog like that. And you know what? She wouldn't. She took the dog with her. She took the dog with her. The dog was alive. Marcus wasn't. That's cutting. Yeah. Yeah. And he's right. Yeah. Liz would be found guilty on all charges and would be sentenced to 54 years in prison. Her term is set to expire on August 2060. Hmm. So next up is David's trial. Yeah. David went second, and he got to witness what happened to Liz. And he decided to take the plea deal. He pled guilty to manslaughter and related charges and was sentenced to a minimum of 15 years to life. So while both were sentenced and this case would seem closed, it was only about a year later after his sentencing that David Carroll would come forward in a TV interview. A TV interview? Really? Yeah, he gave a TV interview with the local news. Huh. He would come forward with a different story about what happened on the day that Marcus died. In this televised interview, David Carroll would tell this story. He claims first that Liz was not even at the house on the day that Marcus died. He claimed that she had gone out to run errands, leaving Amy and David in the house alone. The two had decided that they wanted to have sex. 
but they needed to get the kids out of the way. David said that he put the older kids outside, and Amy was supposed to put Marcus down for a nap. Rather than putting him down for a nap, that was when Amy decided to wrap him up in the blankets and bind him with the tape. What the fuck? The two had sex, and Amy reportedly forgot about him for the rest of the day until Liz came home. When Liz came home, she discovered Marcus already dead. And according to David's story, this time, panicked and tried to call 911. But it was Amy that argued and fought back to tell him to not call the police. She reportedly threatened Liz, saying, quote, You've seen what happened to Marcus. The same can happen to you if any of this gets out. Thoughts? I mean, nope. No, this man is not a reliable narrator. It's completely unclear from the get-go. Like, well, I guess it is completely clear from the get-go that he will be protecting his wife over his girlfriend, right? Like, perpetually throughout the story. So, Mm -hmm. of course, this is what he's going to come out with, that it was the evil girlfriend's fault and the wife was... You know, an an accidental bystander. Yeah, third party. Yeah. But I don't buy it. I just, I guess I just feel like it takes a degree of insidiousness also to, like, pretend that you passed out in the park, too. We're not talking about somebody that hasn't already come up with a ruse. Right. Like, they had to have this, like, planned out step Mm -hmm. by step and like i'm guessing they went with like oh liz has to do it because she has like the heart condition so that'll give it some legitimacy Mm -hmm. but then she agreed to do it so you don't get to say that she's like an innocent bystander in this whole situation no this whole trio is obscene and this kid even even if this story from david is true a toddler died because you wanted to have sex that doesn't exactly improve your situation. No, these people are disgusting. David said in the interview that he feels that what happened to Marcus was truly an accident. He accepts blame for his neglect of the child and maintains that Liz is innocent and tried to help but was under threat from Amy. That's, it just seems incredibly absurd. Clearly, these people saw Marcus as less than human. Mm -hmm. If this is what they were willing to treat him as. Exactly. Exactly. Because even if you want to put this all on Amy and say, oh, she's the one that bound him in blankets. She's the one that tied him up and taped him up. What in your home made her feel like that was okay? Because, I mean, there's no story that he's presenting where they're not with Monsters. without full knowledge of what happened, right? Like, mm-hmm. it, he is not in any way saying, like, I had, and I had no idea this was going on, right? Like, yeah, yeah. The best case scenario that he has presented is we locked him up he's, because we wanted to have sex. And we just let a child die because, oops, we forgot about him? Yeah. No. 
Makes Marcus sense. doesn't seem like a kid that you forget about. Mm-mm. Mm-mm. No, that's absolutely absurd. Like, I was a kid that you forgot about. <laughs> because I was pathologically quiet. I I have been forgotten before, too. But anyway. But Marcus doesn't seem like a kid that you forget about, mm-hmm. that you don't notice isn't there. Mm-hmm. No. Yeah, I'm not buying that. I'm sorry. I don't... I don't I don't buy a fucking word of it. Now, Liz would not respond to this story until 2012 when she also gave a televised interview. Mm. And she repeated essentially the same story that she was out running errands when she came home. Marcus was already dead. She tried to call the cops, blah, blah, blah. She claims in this interview that she has nothing to lose by telling the truth now. And she feels that she received bad advice from her lawyer by not speaking up and not telling her side of the story. Hmm. For what it's worth, Liz and David do remain in contact in prison, so they do exchange information. That's interesting. Yeah, Yeah, you you can't trust any part of this whatsoever. So now I wonder if we have any listeners that are doing a little mental math. Mm -hmm. So in 2007... David Carroll was sentenced to a minimum of 15 years. 2007 plus 15 is 2022. Mm -hmm. David's parole hearing was held on July 28, 2022. Wow, a month ago. And according to a local news outlet, lasted a total of 51 minutes. Mm -hmm. The parole board kind of, from what I'm understanding the way that this works, the parole board themselves would make a decision which would then be reviewed by a secondary panel this process can take several weeks i was reading that typically it takes about two weeks but as you can imagine in this case the board received many many letters Mm. condemning david's actions and requested that he not be granted parole i mean it's a wildly short sentence like that's really 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 short for this mm-hmm. for this kind of offense that's insanely short yeah 15 like, years flies by like nothing insultingly short for the murder of a child like let's just be clear about that you know so i checked literally before <laughs> we got on this call <laughs> um from what i'm seeing the parole board still has not made a decision regarding david's release from prison wow. From what I was reading, the letters that you write to parole boards actually do play a big role in the decisions because you have to think this is asking the community if you feel safe with this person. There can be arguments in both ways because I think that sometimes like this can really hurt people that do deserve to be out of prison. Mm -hmm. But I'm just going to let you guys review the facts of the case and what we've talked about. So far. I, I don't know if I would appropriately offer my opinion, but... Offer your opinion. I really empathize with the idea that... I mean, obviously, I'm a... You know me at this point. You all know yeah. me and how I feel about rehabilitation and, and these types of things. But, like, that is a really valid concern for a community to have. That's a really yeah. valid concern for a community to have. I am also really curious because I have lots and lots of friends and acquaintances that do foster children Mm -hmm. um and 
everyone that I've ever known that has had foster children has been able to get like respite care basically or like if there was like a pre-planned family vacation and it wasn't appropriate to take the the foster kid that there would be you know a a pre-planned temporary respite placement for that child or even something spontaneous like I remember um, one of my friends that has been fostering kids for a long time had a medical situation with one of his other foster kids and so three of his he had four at the time three of the foster kids had to just do some temporary respite care and they were mm-hmm. you know spent the weekend with another family and then came back to his yeah. house on Monday after they were settled out with the ER and all the other things with the first kid so it's not like respite care is a game changer yeah yeah that's a real thing I've known people that even just do like they need their own mental health respite mm-hmm. so the kid will they'll seek respite care for a weekend or a week yeah just because like they need their own time because a lot of foster parents don't necessarily have like grandparents or other people and especially with like medically or kind of behaviorally mental health complex kids you know again a lot of those kids just require people with different training and people with different support access so yeah it just feels like a cop-out too like it's a complete cop-out I just I think about all of the lies and all of the guile that there had to be for this family to get foster children to run an in-home daycare when this is the stuff going on in the background. It's that kind of this situation that makes me wonder if they're just in it for the check, right? Like, yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. Lifeway for Youth, the agency that had placed him in the home, um, would eventually be shut down. Um, after a number of investigations, only to open up later as Benchmark Family Services, which is still currently running as a therapeutic foster care agency. That's a big service. Yeah, Benchmark is national. Yeah, that's a huge service. Wow. Yeah. I'm pretty sure Benchmark is what uh, on my county contracts with. I've seen their billboards. Yeah, they used to be Lifeway. Mm-hmm. I did not know that. Wow. They had, at least Lifeway had a lot, a lot of complaints against them mm. about just like lack of check-in services, lack of respite services, not doing appropriate background checks on families. This is so hard for me because I think that the vast majority of parents that foster kids have the absolute best of intentions. I have worked with some amazing foster families that like will put anything on the line for kids. Mm -hmm. But it's this minority of cases that like bring attention to all of the cracks in the system. Yeah, there's that. But I also, you know, like from, from where everything started, there wouldn't have been a reason for Lifeway to push back on this family particularly nothing came up in their background check that was dangerous or scary or suspicious you know mm-hmm. they live in a nice well-resourced community they they would not be a family that would raise any sort of red flags mm-hmm. at, you know at that stage in the process like whether or not Lifeway did any follow-up visits or that type of stuff that they needed to do is a different thing but I don't think you could say like oh they never should have placed a child with this family in the first place because on paper you would not have seen a problem Mm-hmm. Well, and it was family. it was those after placement 
follow-ups that really kind of started a lot of investigations and a lot of changes in the Ohio foster care system. So, for example, one of the new programs that was put in place after this that I think is really, really cool and really, really helpful is essentially just a system that connected various databases. So foster care agencies and child protection would get automatic alerts if any of the caregivers were charged with a crime, such as domestic violence. So Lifeway and Child Services would have been flagged immediately when David got that domestic violence charge in June. And again, it sounds simple, but at the time there was no cross-agency communication. And that's a big, big gap in the system. They also, in Ohio after this case, they expanded the vetting of families and required more frequent face-to-face visits. So prior to this, it was often, it was common practice to just interview parents, just do check-ins, and not, when you did those, not have to see the child. Now it's required that they do face-to-face check-ins. Depending on the age of the kid, they have to, they require one-on-one check-ins to check on the physical and mental health of the child. I mean, stuff like that should have been an obvious given the entire time, but... Yeah, but again, I also... It's hard because I think that... Well, these practically make sense as obvious things... We put so much work on caseworkers mm-hmm. that it is literally impossible for them to do this. Like in in Illinois DCFS here, the caseworkers have obscene caseloads where it is literally impossible to check in on the kids every week or every month like they're required to. One of the points that Holly Schlack makes in her book on the legacy of Marcus, um, Invisible Children, the legacy of Marcus Faisal, she says that while his story is utterly tragic, he was never alone in the foster care agency, especially for disabled kids in foster care. According to a recent study in The Lancet, a third of children with disabilities will experience emotional and or physical abuse, 20% experience neglect, and 10% will experience sexual abuse. So not only are these are disabled kids twice as likely as non-disabled peers to experience all types of abuse, but they're also more likely to experience bullying, social rejection, lack of access, or lack of ability, like Marcus, to communicate that he needs help. And although he was only three, a lot of like older disabled folks still lack that communication access, especially in foster care agencies social class access to resources impact all of these things access to parenting resources like parent training and shit like that i imagine that's one of the resources that you gave up on because Mm -hmm. it's near impossible to get parent support oh it's insane yeah it's just yeah and then like wait lists are so long you know like even for like our like the therapies that our baby didn't end up qualifying mm-hmm. for but like I was told preemptively like we can assess in, a, in you know like like a three-month wait list basically and then if it's deemed that services are required you're going to wait another year and a half on a waiting list before they can put you in so it's like the backlog in these places is obscene really yep yeah. yep I want to talk about kind of what happened with Donna after this um very curious 
that's good. Because, like I said, she was treated terribly in the newspapers. Her other children were not included in any of the news stories, and I chose not to look them up. I hope they're doing well. I hope they grew up loved and cared for. Donna herself would not be able to regain custody of the other children. She was shamed in the media, blamed for what happened to Marcus, saying that she was the first one to fail him, which I think that Donna felt. I think Donna did feel awful that she wasn't able to care for him, but like we had talked about, I also think that she genuinely was not able to. Mentally, emotionally, practically, she did not. No, she had none of the equipment that she needed for doing that. No, I don't think that she ever intentionally harmed him. I think she loved him, but comments that went on the record like he's your problem now, this woman was broken. And even if she did say that, we don't know the tone with which she said it or anything at this point. Or what she said before or after that. She claims again that she was screaming and arguing and whatnot with the police until she couldn't anymore. Donna would eventually sue the Carroll's Lifeway for Youth and the State Department for wrongful death. She would sue for a total of $5 million dollars. They would eventually settle for 200000 all of which would go toward the care of her other children. So her, so Peaches and Michael actually eventually got that money. There were some other kind of just headlines and highlights about like, oh, clearly she didn't care because she didn't even like come pick up his remains, blah, blah, blah. But chain of custody and like issues with her trying to get the remains because from donations they offered to do a free burial service for him but it would be in hamilton county not in middletown and she wanted him to be buried in middletown and and there were every once in a while i would notice like in newspapers.com like those things would pop up again i think donna was an easy target because she genuinely could not take care of her son What they think of as a blood mother. Mm-hmm. Rather than um, these, the Carols and Amy Baker, who their hands are responsible for killing this boy. Actually did the horrible, abominable thing. At the end of the day, this little boy lost his life to those three people. Because his father, his foster parents didn't want to deal with him. They didn't love him or respect him enough to attend to his needs. And they treated him worse than I can ever imagine treating another human. They didn't have any regard for his sovereignty, his dignity at all. To lock him in a closet like that and just walk away. And that's our story for today. Well, that was quick. Sorry. Yeah, I mean, it's kind of a big deal, but yeah, I would just, as always, kind of offer up the hope Anybody else that still uh, misses him, like I would do, yeah. just hope that we can reserve the space to, yeah, to connect with the cosmos in whichever way you choose to, to, yeah, to carve out some space for him. Take a moment for Marcus. Take a moment for I don't know. I hate to be like on my soapbox, but y'all know me. 
take a moment for all the kids with disabilities, all the people with disabilities that have suffered abuse, that have yeah. lost their lives. Yeah, because this happens when you're not the one doing the hard digging. Yeah. Ugh. Okay, you wanna you wanna slide us into prequels for next week? I will. So this week we were supposed to uh, hear from me about a, uh, a hazing death, and uh, we will be doing that next time because uh, I needed to not tell that story this week. So um, we will be picking right back up with a um, a hazing. I don't even want to say a hazing incident because really this is a story about how um, nearly a semester's worth of um, compounding mistreatment of a teenage boy eventually led to his death. Um, And we'll talk a lot about the aftermath of that as well for a small Ohio university that um, I'll be curious to see how you feel about how they responded. Probably bad if it's Ohio. Yeah, yeah. So uh, <laughs> come back with us, friends, next time to the um, front pocket of the states, where we will yeah. finally be discussing this particular case. Yay. And my apologies um, for being very much so off my game right now. You good. You yeah. good. Uh, mm-hmm. In the meantime, everybody, come visit us. See us on the socials. Write nice reviews to us. Um, give us a little five star. We need it. Yeah, we like those. Um, yeah. We like those. Um, it'll be a nice, happy little boost to our week. So yeah, the only people that hate us seem to write reviews, which sucks. <laughs> like, I mean, ain't that the story of my life? <laughs> it's the story of everything. But you know, it's like you know when you're mad at something, you always take to the internet. But if you're happy about something, we would really encourage you to also <laughs> please let us. No, with a cute little five star review in the in your podcast app of choice because um, yeah. like that that would be really nice. a cute little five star review. Mm-hmm. Add a unicorn, make us happy. Yeah, Whatever. Like, we need it. We need it. All right, friends. All right, we need to go to bed. Go to bed. All right, we're all gonna go to bed now. Yes. Good night. Good night. Um, be nice. Eat cheese in bed. We love you. Mouth words are hard. That's why I'm going to eat this nacho. Eat that nacho.